To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, and do the works you, and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Thank you. Thank you so much, Hannah. <clears throat> this morning, as we enter into uh, the time of, of message, I, before we even get there, I just want to say how proud I am of these students and how much of an honor it is to watch them serve. <clears throat> This day is not about them, but how cool just as they lead us in worship. It's something that's it's very cool for me and for the rest of my staff to, to watch and witness, and I hope it is for you guys as well. My name is John Andrew Clayton. I'm the director of students here at Central, which for me is an absolute honor. Uh, I, in fact, actually came up through the high school group here at Central, as did my wife. Um, came up through the high school group, even for a number of years, um, served on staff under Dustin and... Uh, and then later, my wife and I, we, we left and served overseas in Guayaquil, Ecuador, uh, just training youth leaders and pastors from all around the country. But now we feel incredibly honored and blessed just to be back and to be serving within this role and to be working with these awesome students. And so uh, it's with that heart that I come to you guys this morning and, and uh, am super thankful for them and for our, our message this morning. Uh, but before we jump into our time of teaching, I just want to pray for us one more time as we open the Word. Father, we do thank you so much for this morning. And God, we pray that as we open your word, Father, we thank you that it is living and active and sharper than a double-edged sword. And Father, we pray, God, that as we open it, Father, would you teach us something about yourself this morning? Father, something new. Father, would we walk away from this service being utterly changed? Father, not because of anything that any student or any man has done, but Father, all because of who you are and what you've done, and what that means for our lives. Father, we love you this morning. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, as we get into the book of Revelations, I think it's probably immediately clear why this passage has been selected for this morning. I think that for us, on two hands, as a corporate body of believers, as Central Church, but also as individual members of the body of Christ, this passage is of vital importance vital importance for us. If we do not remember our first love, there was a, a very stern warning that Jesus, through John, issued to the church in Ephesus. And so our goal this morning is to take a look at this passage. Look at Jesus's warning to this church, his warning, and to see what we can learn from it and how we, moving into this new year, can make sure that we are remembering well our first love and that everything that we do flows out of that. And so let's open up. Revelations 2, 1 through 5. I'm going to read it one more time, and then we're going to dissect it. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not 
and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Now, in order to find the meaning of this passage within its proper context, we'll give a little bit of of background on the city of Ephesus, but also on the church in Ephesus in this time. Ephesus was the largest and and really the most influential city in all of Asia Minor. And throughout the rest of, of Revelations 2 and 3 and, and so on, John, through the, the vision that Jesus gives him, continues to give his messages to other churches. There are seven churches in total that he's giving a message to. And those other six churches outside of the church of Ephesus, those churches were founded because of the ministry of the church of Ephesus. And so it's, it's no surprise that he addresses the church of Ephesus first, being the, mo- the largest, the most influential and the church that had a lot of good things going for it. But now, one of the things that we see in Revelations 1, we see that Jesus appears to John, appears to him. John turns around, and he sees the one who appeared like the Son of Man, and sees him standing among seven golden lampstands. Sounds like weird figurative language, right? But one of the things that Jesus outlines within Revelations 1 is that these, these stars that he's talking about and these lampstands, they're symbolic of something. He says that these stars, these are the seven angels or seven messengers, seven leaders of the churches. And these seven golden lampstands are the churches themselves. And so now as we read in, in Revelations 2, 1, where Jesus begins his message, he's introducing himself here within this passage. He says, to the angel, the, the messenger, the leader of the church in Ephesus, right. The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. It's important to note from the outset that Jesus is claiming to hold the leaders of these churches in his right hand. He's holding them in his hand. And he's walking among these seven golden lampstands. Incredibly important to note that from the very beginning. Because if we don't understand that, then then there's nothing else that we can understand. Jesus is active. He's imminent, ever-present within our affairs, guiding and watching over us. And so as he begins to give this challenge to the church of Ephesus, along with this warning, we've got to understand that, that he's not simply challenging the church in Ephesus and warning them, but he's doing so telling them, I'm the one who's holding you in my hand. What I'm asking of you is not impossible. I'm here. I'm with you. I am with you. And he continues with his message, starting in verse 2. Jesus begins by commending the church in Ephesus. He tells them, I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Now, if we were to stop right there, it sounds like a great description, right? Who wants that set of them? I'd like that set of me. That sounds great. These people are, are intolerant of evil people among them, of any sort of unsound doctrine that's seeking to, to disrupt the movement of the gospel. These are, you know, 
by and large, good things that he's commending them for. But then we get to this really important word in this passage where Jesus interjects and he says, but, I see all these things you've been doing, but, in verse 4, it says, but I have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first. You see, for, for Jesus, this was primary. It didn't matter what kind of works they were doing, what kind of works the church in Ephesus was doing or any of the other six churches. And now let's modernize that a little bit. It doesn't matter what kind of works central church is doing or even us as individual members of the body of Christ. It doesn't matter if we have abandoned the love that we had at first. They're utterly useless, those works. What, what sort of good works could you do if your main and primary motivation is not the love of Christ? If all your works are not an overflow of the love that God has for you, then they're just going to be in vain. But he doesn't just rebuke this church. He doesn't just tell them that he, he has this thing against them, that they abandoned their first love. He challenges them. He tells them exactly what they need to do. As we pick up in verse 5, he says, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. He gives them a way out. He tells them exactly what they need to do in order to regain this love that they had. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. But he doesn't just leave it at the challenge. He comes back and he warns them in the second half of verse 5. He says, if not, if you don't remember from where you have fallen, if you don't repent, and if you don't do the works you did at first, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Now, it's important to remember that this lampstand, again, he's referencing the very same thing he was referencing in Revelations 1. It's the church within all of its influence, all of its good works. He's saying, if you don't regain the love you had at first, I'm going to remove your lampstand from its place. I think we can see very clearly from the beginning why this passage is so important for us. And I think our question coming out of reading these verses has got to be, man, is, is that me? Could that exact same rebuke be said of me? Have I lost the love that I had at first? Have I abandoned it? Maybe I'm not going to put you guys on the spot first, but I'll put myself on the spot. When I ask myself that question, a lot of times I'm forced to answer, yes, I have. Whether it's the work of the ministry or who knows, this or that thing, life gets pretty busy, right? There are a whole lot of things going on. Whatever the thing may be that's, that's pulling your tension, your eyes away from Jesus and pulling your heart away from him, I've got to answer a lot of times, yes, I've abandoned my first love. Now, I'd love for us this morning to take a, a little bit of, a, of a, an internal uh, survey. Could this be said of you? Could this be said of you this morning? If so, as is the case with me a lot of times, we've got to ask, well, how do we regain our first love? What are we to do about this? I, I'm so thankful that he gives us the answer. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. I think a lot of times when we lose our first love, it's principally because we have lost sight of the person of Jesus, of who he is. 
And so I think step number one within this idea of remembering from where we have fallen, we've got to be captivated by Christ. Captivated by Him. If we're not captivated by Christ, then there's nothing we can do as far as regaining our first love. A lot of times when we seem to have abandoned our first love, it's because we have forgotten who Jesus is and what it is that He has done for us. As I say this word, captivated, I, I want you to think of, I don't know, maybe a, a mental picture of what it means to be captivated. And I'm going to share a little story with you. I have this really good friend. It's a guy I love. Uh, and you consider him a mentor. A lot of you know him as well. His name is Josh Ramsey. He spoke this past summer. If you know Josh, you know that he is um, he's a fireball. He has got a ton of energy, but he is also very easily distracted. And so one of the things that we do a lot of in student ministries is take retreats. Uh, and so it's something we love to do to get away, get out of, out of town for a little bit, and spend time intentionally digging into God's Word and worshiping and growing in our faith. Well, for these trips, what we've got to do is go buy all the supplies for the trips, right? So we would always go to Sam's Club, and Josh and I would get to Sam's Club. We'd each have our own cart and our own little, you know, little shopping list. But one of the things you notice about Sam's Club and Costco, which I'm certain is uh, intentional, when you walk in, what's the first thing you see? A lot of times you see this giant display of enormous TVs, right? So we'd make it six steps into the store, and Josh is just standing there, jaw almost touching the floor, just watching TV for I don't know how long. He was utterly captivated by these TVs. There was no shopping that was to be done by him. I had to do it all, essentially. He would break himself away periodically and, and, uh, and do a little bit of shopping, but he always find his way back to the TVs. And uh, I even remember this one time that as I'm moving along with my basket and my, my list, I see him frantically searching around from across the store thinking, goodness gracious, what, what is he doing? I know he's not looking for groceries that intently. I don't know what he's doing. It, it turns out that he had been so captivated with whatever was on the TV, probably nothing he was even interested in, uh, just moving pictures on the screen, so, so captivated by the images on TV that uh, he lost his cart and all of his progress, all the groceries he'd bought so far, he lost it all. And so we had to start back from square one. He, he may have found it. I don't remember what happened. But uh, he was so captivated. It, it's in this very same manner that we must be captivated by Christ. Looking at who he is and what he's done and being so enthralled with him that everything else that, that's around us just fades into the background as secondary, as unimportant. And this morning, as we get into a couple different examples uh, through the lives of the, uh, the disciples, the apostles, of what it means to be captivated by Christ, I want to briefly mention that these disciples were, were teenagers. With the exception of, of Peter, we know that these were teenage kids, these disciples. And so keep that in mind as we are being led in, in worship and in, in different areas of, of ministry this morning by teens it's also teens from whom I think we have a lot to learn this morning in what it means to behold and be captivated by the person of Christ. So if you will, open up to John 1. John 1. We're going to start in, uh, in verse 29. Just to give you a little context, this is John the Baptist that it's talking to. John 1, starting in verse 29, it says, The next day when he, being John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. As John is is sitting there and across the way, however the, the scene was set up, he sees Jesus. This guy that he'd been waiting on for so long, knowing this is the Messiah, the one who's come to redeem us. This is the person that John has been waiting for for his entire life. Sees him walk in front of him. And all he can do is say, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There are two things that John acknowledges. He acknowledges the person of Jesus, says, behold the Lamb of God, but he simultaneously acknowledges the function of Jesus. Not forgetting that it's this guy that was going to take away all of his sin. It's within those two perspectives that John beholds Jesus for who he is and what he's come to do. Now, as we ask ourselves, are we captivated by Christ? Do you remember who he is? Do you feel the weight of what it is that he has come to do? We move on, and we see that uh, in the next passage, it says that John's standing again with a couple of his disciples, starting in verse 35. It says, The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying. And they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. Similarly, as John's standing there, this time with two of his disciples, and they see Jesus pass by, all John can do is say, Behold the Lamb of God. And what do the disciples do? They go off chasing after Jesus, and he invites them. You want to know what, where I'm staying, what I'm doing, what I'm about? Come and see. They dropped everything because of who he was and what he had come to do, and they followed after him. Moving down into the next passage, we see this scene, and I'm just going to summarize it for you a little bit, but it starts in John 1.43. We get this picture of one of Jesus' disciples named Philip who goes up to one of his friends named Nathaniel, and he says, Nathaniel, we have found the one of whom Moses and the prophets wrote, this Jesus of Nazareth. Nathaniel says, Nazareth, can anything good come from Nazareth? Philip says, come and see. Just come and check it out. And upon entering into a conversation with Jesus, Nathaniel immediately recognizes, this is him. This really is the guy that I've been waiting on. And Jesus says, are you amazed at these things that I'm telling you, you're going to see much greater things than these. In the very last passage of that verse, he tells them, truly, truly, I tell you, you're going to see the heavens opened and angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And we don't see Nathaniel's reaction immediately after this, but we know he must have been captivated. You see, within this, this verse, what Jesus is doing is referencing back to a promise that he had given to Jacob. As Jacob in Genesis 28 is on his way to Haran, he stops one night and sleeps in the desert, puts his head on a rock, and he dreams, and he dreams of this ladder stretching from earth all the way up into heaven, and on this ladder there are angels of God ascending and descending. Jacob wakes up from his dream, and he said, surely God is in this place. This is the gateway of heaven. Now I want you to imagine Nathaniel's reaction as he's sitting here talking to Jesus, the one who'd come to fulfill all of these promises especially Jacob's right here. And Jesus tells him, 
you're going to see the heavens opened and angels of God ascending and descending, not on this ladder in a dream, but on the Son of Man in reality. Again, like I said, we don't see Nathaniel's immediate reaction. But we know by the fact that he was counted among the apostles later on by the name Bartholomew. And we know traditionally that he left for India and Armenia and took the gospel there and was eventually martyred for his faith. We know based on that, what, tradition, what, what history records of him, that he was captivated by Christ. Captivated. Just as John and these disciples and Nathaniel were captivated by Christ, so must we be if we are to remember our first love, both for his person, who he is, and for his function, what he's come to do. But not just being captivated by Christ. That's, that's number one. Next, he says, repent. And one of the things we see in Romans 2.4 is that God intends all of his love and his kindness, kindness to lead us to repentance. And so not just being captivated by Christ, but we must also be consumed by his love. If you will, flip with me to John 13. John 13. We're going to start in verse 1. But it's in this passage where we see Jesus washing the disciples' feet. And in John 13, verse 1, it says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, and having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He loved them in the original language, aistelas, to perfection. He loved them to completion, to the absolute max. He loved them to the very end. And as we see through the rest of this passage, he goes on to explain to them that he has come to serve. First, he demonstrates a service by washing their feet, indicative of what he'd come to truly serve with in his death. But we pick it up in verse 12. And Jesus says, or it says, when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If then I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you must also wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Jesus loved his disciples to the very end and says, but this isn't the end. You are not just meant to receive my love. By virtue of being loved by Christ, our very natures are transformed, and we are wholly incapable of, of not loving those around us. God's love changes us. When we are consumed by His love, we cannot help it but respond in love to Him and love for those who are all around us. Now, if we find ourselves not loving those around us, We've got a greater question to ask. It's not how can I love those around us. It's how can I respond more appropriately to God's love for me? How can I be consumed by his love? Be consumed by his love. Be captivated by Christ. Be consumed by his love. But we also must be committed to his mission. Committed to his mission. You see that in the lives of the disciples. There was a guy named Joseph de Vioyster. He's also known as Father Damien. I'm going to call him Father Damien from here on out because that's much easier than saying Joseph de Vuyster. But he was from Belgium, from Belgium. And he heard about this group of people who were living on the island of Molokai, Hawaii. Back then, this is in the 1800s, it was a leper colony. 
where those who had leprosy were exiled so they didn't, it didn't infect the rest of the people on the mainland. He heard about these people who'd been cast out, exiled, cut off from the rest of society, and his heart was burdened for them. He knew it, the love of Christ has transformed my heart so much that I've got to share with those who do not know yet. And no one is going to Molokai. And rather than waiting on someone else to take initiative and go themselves, what do you think he did? In 1873, he packed up his bags and he went to Molokai, Hawaii. After six months of being there, he wrote his brother in a letter and he said, I make myself a leper to the lepers in order to gain all to Christ. Talk about commitment. Talk about being captivated by Christ and consumed by his love and committed to his mission. He didn't leave for Molokai, you know, hoping, you know, I want to do your work, God, but I just, I hope I don't get leprosy. He didn't go suspecting that there was a good chance that he would get it. He went knowing that he would get leprosy. And eventually he did. During his 16 years of ministry on this island, he, contra- he contracted leprosy. One day as he's boiling water for, to heat up his bath water, he pours, pours a little boiling water on his foot accidentally. And upon not feeling any pain, where he knew there should have been pain, he realized, that's it. I've got leprosy. It supposedly even he began to pour more boiling water on his foot, just trying to feel something until he finally gave up and knew, that's it, I, I've, I've got leprosy. And tradition records Father Damien as every morning, every Sunday morning, beginning his sermons with the words, my fellow brethren to these lepers. But tradition also records that that morning, or the, the next Sunday morning, whenever it was, that he stood in front of these people within whom he'd been ministering and said to them, my fellow lepers. He truly had made himself a leper to the lepers in order to gain all to Jesus. Now ask yourself, and when I say ask yourself, I'm asking myself the same question at the same time. How committed are we to Christ's mission? In John 11, as Jesus is trying to go to heal Lazarus, he hears Lazarus is sick. He's trying to go to Judea to heal Lazarus. And the disciples say, primarily Peter says, we're not going to go to Judea. They're trying to kill you there, and you can't go either. And then one person stands up, and it's actually Thomas, the one who's known later on as Doubting, stands up and says, no, let us go with him that we may die also. So committed to Christ's mission was Thomas that his death did not matter to him. He counted it worth it to be able to share the love that he had experienced in Christ with those who had not yet experienced it. He counted it worth it. If you will, flip with me to to Matthew 28. As we see Jesus just moments before his ascension, giving his last words to these disciples, what he presumably thought to be some of the most important information that he could give them as he's about to leave them. In Matthew 28, starting in verse 18, it says, And Jesus came and said to them, the disciples, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. 
And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. As Jesus gives this final mission to his disciples, telling them, my desire for you is that you go into all of the nations with this gospel that you've witnessed for years, telling of the love that I have for people. As he's telling them, telling the disciples this, just like Thomas, just like Father Damien, these disciples didn't suspect that they would be martyred for their faith in their going. They knew that it was going to come. Yet they still went anyways. They spread out. And it's by virtue of the Holy Spirit's empowering their ministry that we stand here today having heard. Remember, these are teenagers. People who are so captivated by Christ, consumed by His love, and so committed to His mission. At the overflow of their heart in receiving love from Jesus, they just poured out love for the Father and love for all those around them. So much so that what may happen to them in this life was unimportant, or at the very least, secondary. They counted everything as lost, just like Paul says, for the sake of, of knowing Him surpassing greatness of his worth. And so as we seek this morning, leading into the new year, to take this internal survey and ask ourselves, have we forgotten our first love, either as a church or as individual members of the body of Christ? Well, how do we regain it? Let me ask you this morning, are you captivated by Christ? Are you consumed by his love? Are you committed to his mission? If not, my prayer for you and my my challenge for you this morning, which is the same prayer and challenge that I've issued to myself, as I say again, is to take a fresh look at the person and function of Jesus today, right now. Letting everything else fade into the background, look at the person of Jesus and be enthralled with his majesty and his beauty and be moved to respond accordingly. I'm going to tell you, as we jump into another time of of worship and a time of response, we're going to have some students as well as some other people who are over here under the prayer banner that would just desire to to pray for you. I'll be up here as well. I just love to pray for you. Whether whether it's something regarding today's message or not, whether you just need uh, prayer for something, or if you're saying, man, Maybe that's me. Maybe I have abandoned my first love, and I just so desire to regain it, to remember who Jesus is and be moved by him. Then we'll be up here, and we would love to pray for you this morning. I'm going to pray as we end and as we enter into another time of worship. But through this song, as the band is singing this song, I want you to respond, beholding the person of Christ. Let his love consume you. And out of that, there's no other option than to be committed to his mission. Father, we thank you so much this morning. And Father, we thank you for your word. And Father, we pray, God, that as we worship this morning, God, would we we worship knowing who you are and what it is that you've come to do? Sometimes we just forget how big and how loving you are. God, would you remind us this morning? Would you remind us and would you push our hearts to worship you. Father, we love you. And God, we pray, Father, that you would continue to lead us and to guide us. 
God, resting in the promise that you really do, Father, hold us in your right hand. And God, that you are walking among your churches. God, you're here. And we love you. In your name we pray. Amen.